Do, uh, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, do open uh, your Bible at 1 John 4, 7 to 21. We're going to be going through uh, this incredible passage uh, together this morning. So, love. We sing about it. We talk about it. Love is all around. It's a word which is overused. It's underused. It's misunderstood. It's not heard enough. It's an action which is demonstrated, it's lived out, and it's held back. It's one of our basic human needs, isn't it? Some of us find it difficult, some of us find it easy. Some of us can't believe that we're worthy of it. Some of us think that we are this personified, love. And right at the heart of our worship, here in this church and in churches all around the world, is love. We gather here to worship the God whom we love. James Taylor said this, Worship is the imagination station. You need to curate your heart. You need to worship well, because you are what you love, and you worship what you love. And you might not love what you think. You are what you love, and you worship what you love, and you might not love what you think. And this raises some questions in my mind. What or whom do I love? What or whom do I worship? And are they the same? And what is my response to that, uh, that, that person whom I love? In the English language, as you know, we only have one word uh, for love. So I can say, I love Maltesers, which I do. If you want a way to my heart, you just give me Maltesers. Um, I love my children and I love God. Uh, and, uh, but they don't all mean the same thing, do they? You know, I, I would die for my children, but I wouldn't die for a bag of Maltesers, uh, much to um, some people's surprise. Um, I love my husband, John, but I wouldn't worship him in the same way that I would worship God. And that's why the ancient Greeks got it right when they had five words for love, five different words to love, to try and encapsulate the heart of what love is. Three of these are particularly well known, eros, philia, and agape. I'm sure familiar to many of us here today. Eros refers to that passionate love. Philia is a more general word for love, perhaps to describe the love between family and friends. Yet agape love is the word used most frequently in the New Testament. And it's the one that John uses in the reading that we just heard read to us uh, from 1 John chapter 4 there. Agape is that voluntary, uh, accepting, unconditional, sacrificial love found between people. And it's also the word described in the Bible to refer to the love that God has for each of us. If you like, agape love is divine love divine love. And so we're going to have, uh, spend a few moments together this morning looking at John's first letter and trying to explore what God's love is like and, and our response to that love. And I hope by doing so we'll understand more deeply how who we love and who we worship are intrinsically linked. And so let's look at this passage together. In verse 8, if you've got your uh, Bible open of 1 John 4, we find, I think, three of the most profound and important words in the Bible. And they are these. God is love. God is love. 
three words, I think, that can be pretty mind-blowing. Because on the one hand, we think of God as being powerful and being majestic. We think of him as being the beginning and the end, the creator of all things. And then alongside that, we're also facing everyday pain and suffering and grief in the world. And we ask, how on earth does all this, this big, powerful creator God who's slightly detached and the pain and suffering and grief that we experience in the world, how does that fit with a God who is love? But in the ensuing verses in 1 John, he goes on to insist and to demonstrate how and why God is indeed love. Because if God is just a creator, an all-powerful creator, for example, he wouldn't be bothered with a little old me over here uh, and my life in this grubby little planet. It's only because God is love that he's bothered with any of us at all. It's because God is love that he's bothered with us at all. And God just does not just do love. It's not an activity that God does on a Saturday afternoon, you know, where he's done everything else, and he thinks, oh, well, I'll now do love. God is love. It's at the core of God's very being. John states quite clearly, God is love. And it's because God is love that we're reminded in verse 7 that love comes from God. Love flows from God. God is the source of love. When uh, John, my husband, not the writer in the Bible, and I got together, um, I remember always trying to think of lovely little ways to show him how much I loved him. And he'd do the same for me, little things to show me how much he loved me. And we started going out in the August and so, uh, and quite quickly, because uh, we were pretty ancient by the time we got together, we knew uh, that we were going to get married. We knew that eventually we would get married. And so it came to Christmas, our first Christmas together as boyfriend and girlfriend. And, and I was thinking, this could be the day. You know, this could be the day. What is John going to give me for this first Christmas together? You know, he is going to give me something beautiful, something that expresses his love for me. He's going to give me a, a beautiful necklace or maybe a bracelet, a piece of jewellery. Or maybe this is the day. And he's going to give me the ring and he's going to propose, going to take this opportunity on Christmas Day to propose. So we sat down on that Christmas Day to exchange our gifts with one another. Uh, I can't remember what I gave John, but I'm sure it was absolutely stunning. Um, Do you remember? Oh, right, he doesn't remember either. Um, uh, But then John got out his present for me. And it was a rather large box, about this big, okay, all wrapped up. And I sort of looked at it and thought, well, that's not a ring. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, actually, maybe, because I am a complete romantic, I was thinking maybe he has got the ring or the beautiful necklace or whatever, and he's like wrapped it up in a big box to try and fool me. And I completely convinced myself that's what he'd done. And so I unwrapped this box and I thought, this is it. I was so excited uh, what was inside. My heart was beating fast. I was imagining what was inside this box. And I was confronted by my gift. It was a steamer. (laughs) It was a steamer, like a stack of pans that you steam veg in, okay? Don't be under any illusions, there's any romance here. It was a stack of pans, okay? 
I was so disappointed. John's highly embarrassed now, and so you should be. <laughs> I was so disappointed. Uh, you know, and, and despite my protestation, I was going, oh, it's just what I've always wanted. I was like, almost in tears. Uh, despite telling him it was, I loved it, he knew he got it completely wrong in that moment. I was seriously distressed. I was thinking, how can the love of my life buy me a pack of pans on our first Christmas together. You know, I was seriously considering whether this was actually the man that I should spend the rest of my life with if he thought that was a good gift to give me on our first Christmas together. Anyway, you'll be delighted to know that since then there have been no more steamer moments. <laughs> he learned from that moment. And uh, he's given me a lot. he gave me a brilliant ring, actually, in a great proposal. That's a whole other story for another sermon. And, uh, and we've been married for 15 years this Christmas. But the reason I tell this story is because it actually shows us how important action is in demonstrating our love for people. Action is so important in demonstrating love. And God's love is demonstrated as well through action in the most profound and world-changing action of all. And John explains that we can know that God is love through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The cross is central to our understanding of how God is love. The thread that runs through the whole of biblical history, the whole of the story of the Bible, is the story of God's love for his people, a love that meant he would not let his people go. And as much as God's people rebelled, you can read about it time and time again, about how his people turned away from him, turned away from his love, did their own thing, uh, messed up, turned their backs on him. God held on to them, not to restrict them or to stifle their freedom, but simply because he is love, simply because of his love for humanity, simply because God is love. And when we get to the New Testament, it's then that we see God's ultimate expression of love for the people he had created. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, God breaks into time in the person of Jesus. God does not want to wait to convince his people to turn back to him, to acknowledge his love, to receive his love, to turn to him. But John writes in verse 9 this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God sent his one and only son into the world. That's how we see God's love. This guy on the screen is Kyle Carpenter. When Kyle was 21, he was part of the uh, American force in Afghanistan. Uh, one particular afternoon, he found himself defending a position on a rooftop, a sandbagged position with one of his fe fellow Marines. And um, an attack started, and people were throwing, the enemy were throwing uh, hand grenades towards his position. And at one point in the battle, a hand grenade landed in his sandbank position. And Kyle Carpenter, to protect and to shield his, his friend that he was defending that position with, literally threw himself onto the grenade um, so that his friend didn't die. And when the grenade detonated, Kyle's body took the full impact of the force of that blast. And incredibly, as you can see, he did survive. Uh, but he was severely wounded and underwent horrendous amounts of surgery uh, and, and a lot of it just to save his life. 
But by doing that, he saved the life of his friend. An incredible act of bravery and love. And in fact, his wounds, his scars that he has to have today are a visible sign of the love that he had for his friend. God manifests his love through Jesus to those who don't love him, to those who don't even know him, who are frankly quite rebellious towards him or don't even acknowledge his existence. To those of us who are God's enemies, God still loves. God still sent his son, Jesus, into the world. He didn't need us to know him first or to love him first to do that. And how does he love us? He loves us by sending his son to save us and to free us from our deepest need, the need for forgiveness in our lives. Verse 10, uh, John says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Jesus, we see explicitly God's love in action. And it's a love which is surprising, and it's generous, and it's sacrificial, and it's forgiving, and it's endless, and it's all we need. Out of love, Jesus went to the cross so that we may be free to know God, to experience the riches of God's love as his forgiven people. In verse 16, we read this, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So that means that through Jesus, the way is open for each of us to live in God, in relationship with the God who is the creator of the universe, with the God who is love. Now, some of us in this church, I know, have been Christians for a very long time. Uh, Some of us have been Christians for a really short time, and some of us are still on that journey, exploring what it means to be a follower of God. But I wonder if this morning we all need to just stop for a moment and fully grasp the immensity of this love that God has for each one of us. Do you know that God loves you so much that he took the initiative? He didn't wait for you to come to him, but sent Jesus to die for your sins anyway. Do you know that Jesus died to set you free from the stuff that's rubbish in your life, that separates us, that stuff which separates us from the God who is holy when we are not? Do you know that deep in your heart? Does it cause you to worship him with all that you are? Or is perhaps your knowledge of God's love just knowledge? It's head knowledge and it hasn't reached your heart and transformed your life. I think that's a challenge for all of us this morning. Back to the passage. We get to verse 11. And verse 11 uh, of this part of John's letter is a really pivotal verse. Because we hear first that statement of truth. Not that we love God first, but that he loved us and sent his son. And then we fully, when we fully grasp that, the second part of that verse tells us what our response to God's love should be. Dear friends, John says, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Because of God's love, we ought to love one another. And John doesn't just say that once as a sort of passing statement and move on to something else. But this is so important that he says it three times. He says it in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. When we've received God's love, we love in return. And then verse 21, uh, where John says, And he has given us this command. Jesus has given us this command. Whoever loves God must love his brother. It's really important. It's fundamental. We've received love from God. Our response is to love one another. 
Now, I don't know whether there is somebody in your family uh, that you look really similar to, or perhaps um, you uh, look, uh, somebody looks really similar to you in your family. I remember when I was about 20, and a friend of our family came to visit me, and we were chatting away, catching up as you do. Uh, and they started to tell me about this lovely picture that they'd seen of me at my mum's house, where they'd been uh, previously. And they were describing this picture. And, and as they were describing it, I was, you know, you do that thing where you sort of, you nod your head and you agree and you've got no idea what on earth they're talking about. I was doing that. Uh, and they were saying, oh, it's just such a lovely professional picture. It really captures you. Uh, and it's beautiful the way it's in black and white. And when they said that, I suddenly realized what they were talking about. Uh, they were actually talking about a, a photograph, portrait of my auntie Judith, my dad's sister, that was up in our dining room. Uh, my auntie, uh, she, she was an actress, and she had died a few years previously. And because she'd been an actress, we had amazing, beautiful uh, photographs of her. And we had that particular picture up in our dining room. And I looked, I knew I looked like her, but the fact that a friend who knew me really well thought it was a picture of me really bowled me over because there was such an incredible resemblance between us. If we're God's children, then we should be displaying the family likeness. We should be displaying the family likeness. In John's gospel, Jesus puts it like this in John 13, 35. All people will know if you are my disciples, if you love one another. Display the family likeness, love one another. So what is the family likeness? Let's unpack it. Well, if God's love, if God's love is surprising and generous and sacrificial and forgiving and endless, then our love for God and each other and everybody out there should be surprising and generous and sacrificial and forgiving and endless. Loving in this way is the most Christ-like quality imaginable. And I think that sounds like a huge task. It sounds almost impossible. I know I can't do that. I find it a massive struggle even to love the people that I live with, let alone people I don't even know out there. <laughs> John's really delighted I'm preaching this morning. <laughs> I love you all the time, love, don't worry. Um, but the good news is found in verse 15. Where, it's, where, where um, it says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. We have the Holy Spirit in us to help us to live out this incredible love that God has for us to the people around us and the people in our world today. And it's when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we start to take on the mind of Christ and we start to live and act uh, and make decisions in a way that demonstrates God's incredible love, that people will see the love of God in a very real way. Whoever loves God must also love his brother and his sister. One of the things that I found really, uh, perhaps most difficult, uh, about the election in America uh, this week and the time leading up to it uh, was the, actually the Christian evangelical response uh, to the Trump campaign and their support of the Trump campaign. Uh, and I'm sure we all got the media spin on things, but I could not reconcile in my own mind that simple command of Jesus to love one another with that hateful rhetoric we were hearing constantly coming from Trump supporters and the Trump campaign. In fact, I found the whole of the Clinton and Trump uh, election campaigns really hard to swallow. And whatever your view of the election uh, and the election campaigns were, those campaigns were characterized, I think, by hate and by fear that was peddled about the other. 
And wasn't that true as well of the EU referendum campaigns that happened in our own nation? That peddling of fear and hate of the other. And the world is fearful. We're fearful, some of us, of Trump. We're fearful of terrorism. We're fearful of ISIS. We fear the tearing apart of the environment. Uh, we fear our own or our country's financial situations. We fear losing our jobs. We fear loneliness. We fear illness. We fear people. Maybe we fear a particular relationship. But into this fear, into this fear, there is truth and there is good news. Because the love of God is the antithesis of fear. And John makes this point really boldly by highlighting this in verse 18 with some incredible words that there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear there is no fear in love God is love there is no fear in love but perfect love the love of God drives out fear and this is the love can, that can drive out fear in our world today can drive out the fear that is peddled uh, by some people in power because God wins and love wins. And so this is what the love of God is. It's a love which is radical and it's freely given. It breaks through barriers of religion and social norms and societal norms. The love of God that means when we're faced with retribution, we forgive anyway. The love of God means that when we're faced with division, we bring unity. It means that aggression is met with peace. It means that fear and hate are met with love. What would our politics, our governments, our societies, our homes, our families, our workplaces, our schools, our colleges, our universities be like if this was the sort of love that was truly manifest and lived out? God has called you and I to be his own in our small corner of his world. What would it mean, therefore, for you to live out this sort of love of God in the place where God has put you, with the people God has put you today. I want to end this morning uh, really with a transcript of uh, a story that I heard first 17 years ago. And it is for me one of the most profound stories of Christ-like love that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation trials in South Africa following uh, apartheid. And it's the transcript of an organization that were there in the courtrooms and they were recording the stories that were told in the courtrooms. So imagine this scene, we're in a courtroom in South Africa around 17 years ago. And a frail black woman stands slowly to her feet. She's about 70 years of age. And facing her from across the room, there are a group of white uh, police officers, one of whom is named Mr. Vanderbroek. And he has just been found, uh, tried and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. It was Mr. Vanderbroek who had come to the woman's home a number of years back and taken her son and shot him at point-blank uh, range and then taken his body and burned it on a fire while he and his officers parted nearby. Several years later, Vanderbroek and his security police colleagues had returned to take her husband as well. For many months, this lady knew nothing of her husband's whereabouts. And then almost two years after his disappearance, Vanderbroek came back to fetch the woman herself. And she described during the trial how she remembers that evening 
going to a place beside a river where she was shown her husband who was bound and beaten, but she said he was still strong in spirit and he was lying on a pile of wood. And the last word she heard from his lips as the officers poured petrol on over his, over his body and set him aflame were these, Father, forgive them. And now the woman stands in the courtyard and she listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbroek. A member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her at this point and says, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman calmly but confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. And she pauses and then continues. My husband and my son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbroek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining within me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. I would like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that I offer him forgiveness and love because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband, and so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbroek in my arms, embrace him, and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As he does, those in the courtroom, friends and family and neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.